Hey, hello friends, and welcome to this message, which is specially handpicked to minister to you and to bless you. I am Pastor Lincoln Seranga, senior pastor here at Liberty Christian Fellowship in London. My passion is the pursuit of 100% answered prayer. If that sounds like a good subject to you, why don't you follow me at lincolnseranga.com and also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media where you will be able to find other messages as well as find access to short courses, coaching opportunities, and more. God bless you as you listen to this message. Okay, friends, um, uh, as you saw in the uh, e-flyer, we want to look at God's sovereignty. We want to demystify and understand the sovereignty of God and uh, particularly, I know that especially in this time, as God is beginning to break out, there are some uh, things that God is going to push us to enter. I am completing writing a book on, uh, on the will of God. It's called The Hidden Will of God. It's an intense book. It's not for the faint-hearted. And it's going to need to sit on strong foundations. There are people who are not ready to pray. Not ready to push because they believe the world runs on God's sovereignty. That your prayer is a helpless little appeal, but God has already written what's going to happen. And so you better wake up and smell the coffee <laughs> because God is sovereign and nothing will change because you pleaded. In fact, the sense is even when you pray, He ordained that you pray. So it's not you praying, it's Him praying through you. Everything is like we, it's. In, at its extreme, the sovereignty of God reduces man to a puppet or a pawn on God's chessboard. And God is moving the pieces and you are just a robotic piece in God's um, supernatural orchestration. And we need to examine these things humbly and not pretend we fully understand. But I wanted to, to tackle uh, this question as I put it out. That... Uh, does God harden someone's heart and then judge them? It's part of the questions that arise on, 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 uh, on sovereignty. And I'm going to show you, I'm going to read for you now the portion of scripture where it comes from. We're going to discuss this. We'll take our time uh, into next week as well and see how much we can learn. Romans chapter 9 and verse 14 to 20. You will excuse us today. We did not have the mighty Marvin with us. He's just walked in now. So we have nothing to display for you to read behind me. You're going to have to either open your own Bible or trust me, but I think it's best if you open. So let's become studious people. Romans chapter 9 and verse 14 is one of those perplexing verses, those perplexing portions of scriptures that you read and are left confused and I think, oh my God, uh, do I have a say at all in my salvation? Did God just wake up one day and say, so and so, so and so, so and so, so and so will be saved. The rest are going to hell. Uh, that's election. The doctrine of election sits on this thing that God, um, as the Bible talks about the election, we will go into all these difficult teachings and, and look at them because uh, we are now need, getting ready to preach the gospel. And again, at its extreme, People who teach the doctrine of election say you don't you don't even need to preach the gospel. The ones that God wrote in the book of life will come, whether you reach out or not. They're on their way in. So evangelism 
is not uh, something we can be ambitious about. It's God who does it. He moves you to speak to somebody because their name is written in the book of life. It becomes very confusing. So that's why we're doing this, this journey. We're going to be patient. I'm, I'm trying to learn to be a teacher these days. and Be patient. Take my time. Romans 9, verse 14 to 20. And uh, I, I told the teams that I may want to take back the Fridays for a season because um, we need to go through these things together. And I don't know how long it will take. So what shall we say then? It says, Romans 9, verse 14 to 20. What shall we say then? It's actually 23. We'll go up to 25. Uh, is there injustice in God? Absolutely not. The question we are asking, can God harden someone's heart as he did Pharaoh? And we're going today to focus on Pharaoh. The Bible talks about how God hardened his heart and then judged him. And as we are going to see here, God says, I harden who I harden, and I have mercy on whom I have mercy. Complex doctrine. So shall we say there is injustice in God? Absolutely not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human desire or exertion. I'm actually reading from the New International Translation, New English Translation. I didn't want the New King James because I wanted it to be plain English. It's difficult enough already as a, as a concept. I didn't want English on top of that. Yeah? I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human desire or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. So the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may demonstrate my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, God has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy and he hardens whom he chooses to harden. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does he still condemn and send anyone to hell if he is the one who has hardened them? Why does he still find fault? For who has ever resisted his will if he has decided? For who indeed are you, O mere human being, to talk back to God? Does what is molded say to the molder? Uh, other versions said, Does the pot say to the potter, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right to make from the same lamp of clay one vessel for special use and another for ordinary use. For what if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath? So here we have some interesting language that we shall be exploring. Objects of wrath. So there are people who are objects of wrath, prepared for destruction, as if created for destruction. And what if he is willing to make known the wealth of his glory to the subjects or the rather objects of his mercy that he has prepared beforehand for glory? Prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. 
as he also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And I will call her who was unloved, my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Amen. <laughs> there it is. Tough, tough passage. And we will look at a few other tough ones. But you see, we, as a family, as a network, as a connection of friends, need to understand and grapple with the tough elements of the scriptures. And we need to be able to explain these matters. Now, the sense here is as you've heard, God chooses whom he will have mercy on and whom he doesn't, he won't have mercy. It has got nothing with you, nothing to do with you. You can't choose. It's the same mindset that drives. God chooses whom he will heal and whom he will not heal. So it is vain for you to pray for healing because God has already decided sovereignly. He has decided as the sovereign God. It is sovereignty, divine sovereignty. We need to resolve divine sovereignty and a belief in the, in the miraculous. How do you resolve it? Does God want this? Or is this something he has already decided in his sovereign power? And therefore, there is no place for our appeal. I want to answer this. I want to give you my best shot at this. And I would love to hear an exchange as we go forward. Now, these are the presuppositions. As we begin to tackle the subject of sovereignty, we need to put some presuppositions in place. Some basic assumptions. Some ground rules. For us to journey. First of all, let's dis define sovereignty. The word sovereign, as you know, refers to a ruler. So, uh, Queen Elizabeth is the sovereign of the United Kingdom. She is the queen. That means there is no one above her. Sovereignty means... There is no one higher. You are the final say. You are the ruler. And so in talking about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about his rule. We're talking about his dominion in, across all creation, the whole world, the whole universe. God is referred to as the sovereign Lord. We'll go into these things a little more, but I want to get into the juice of matters. So we're talking about his dominion, his rule, his rulership, his unquestionable rulership. Now, people get confused straight away there. And uh, uh, there are two phrases that are used. God is in control. And so, uh, when a flood hits a, a country and people die, there are theology, there, there, there is theology and there's um, teaching that says that's God. It's God because he's, uh, he's sovereign. And we need to, add, to, to examine this language and uh, why we are touching this again. Uh, 2, 2 Chronicles 7.14, God says, if I send the locusts, if I send the floods, if I send, uh, if I seal up the, the rains and there's no rain, if there's pestilence, if my people were called by my name. So again, that is sovereignty language. And we need to just understand what it means. We're going not into that verse, into others, so that we are rounding this whole subject. So it may take some time. 
There are several presuppositions, uh, things we need to put in place to discuss this well. Number one, God is omnipotent. We cannot tackle sovereignty until we resolve. Number one, he is the ruler of the whole universe. He is the sovereign. There's no one higher. There's no court of appeal. He is the utmost top ruler of the, of the universe. Secondly, he is omnipotent. Now again, I'll tell you this as a theologian. Allow me to label myself that way. <laughs> there is a difference between omnipotence and sovereignty. Again, theologians get confused. They mix up omnipotence and sovereignty. Omnipotence speaks about God's ability. Sovereignty speaks about his rule. There's a difference. Sovereignty is about rulership. Omnipotence is about capability and capacity. So when we say God is omnipotent, what we are saying, there is nothing that is doable that he cannot do. That, of course, does not mean that he can sin. <laughs> so potency there is not about every possible possibility. It is just that there is nothing that is so hard that he can't cope with it, that he can't do it, that is outside somehow, that is some, somehow beats his power. God cannot fail on any matter. He is omnipotent. And it's through his omnipotence that he created heaven and earth by words. That shows you the power of God. Because he didn't even get up, virtually speaking. He just spoke everything into existence and called everything that we know into being by speech. He is omnipotent. That is different from sovereignty. In fact, creation is a demonstration of his sovereignty and his omnipotence. But sovereignty is about his rule, not his power. Some people make a mistake in defining uh, omnipotence. This is what uh, a fairly respected theologian described uh, a sovereignty like, and I totally disagree. He said, when we say God is sovereign, we mean he is powerful and authoritative enough to be able to override all other powers and authorities. I thought, no, 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 I think we are mixing up omnipotence and sovereignty. God is powerful enough to overrule all the... Of course he is. He is omnipotent and is the sovereign. He's the topmost. But sovereignty is not about... Um, how much power God has. Sovereignty is about how God uses his power. Sovereignty is about how God exercises dominion in the earth. He is sovereign. And so it's important to understand those presuppositions. Number one, God is uh, the king of the universe. He is also omnipotent. There's nothing he cannot do. Now, I want us to just look at a couple of verses just to anchor that. Psalm 115, 
Now please understand, again, when we hear some of these uh, statements, uh, they can be confusing. Listen to 115, Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in heaven. This is Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Oh my goodness. Our God does whatever he pleases. That is the word of God. I want to read another one which sounds exactly the same. Psalm 135. And we're going to these things a little deeper. 135 verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth. In the seas and in all deep places. That was Psalm 135 and verse 6. Now I want to ask you a question. All of you are God's people. You are God's people. Does God do whatever he pleases? Answer me. <laughs> Does it? Does God do whatever he pleases? I will tell you a good... Let me help you. No, he doesn't. He, he does not. I'll tell you an example. The Bible says he does not want any to, ple to perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of his son. So has he gone and saved everybody? That's what would please him. He cannot. That is not... This, these are sovereignty verses. So you need to understand that there's a difference between sovereignty and omnipotence. Just because God can do it, as these Psalms are declaring, and that's the point they are making, he cannot be stopped. He can do whatever he wants. He actually does whatever he wants, and I'll show you how he does that. How does God do whatever he pleases? That's the question. What actually pleases God? What pleases God? And people think what pleases God is to have his way. And that's the definition of sovereignty. He sends a flood here, sends an earthquake there because it pleases him. And he displays his power by that. Completely misunderstanding. What pleases God is very interesting. I'll give you a clue. He pleases, what pleases God is that you love him. What pleases God, and we're going into that now, what pleased God is to create people with a free will. That pleased him, and he did it. Yeah. Now, he does not now use his omnipotence to override the will that he created. No, what he created that was pleasing to him was to create people with a free will. That pleased him, and he did it. You couldn't stop him doing it. He did it. He does what pleases him. That's what those verses are saying. It's not saying you're going to go, God is going to go around enforcing his will on anyone walking on the street and say, I don't want that, therefore I'm stopping it. I don't want that, I'm stopping it. We're going to read some very interesting verses as we go along. Uh, there are verses which shows that God basically makes a fool of the nations. He comes in and rule, overrules nations. And I'm thinking, are you sure? Is that actually what's happening? Has God gone? I wish you could go to Uganda and overrule a few things. I wish you could go to, to South Africa and overrule a few things. I wish you could go to some Arab countries. I wish you could come here and overrule some things. God does not walk around demonstrating omnipotence. 
Rather, he goes around demonstrating sovereignty. That means sovereignty is never a demonstration of omnipotence. Please make notes. Sovereignty is not always a demonstration of potency. There are two different things. So we have a God who can do all things, sitting in heaven, watching everything that's going on. That's why people are so angry. If there is a God in heaven, how can there be an earthquake that kills thousands of people? If there's a God in heaven, how can a flood come and wipe away a whole city? Because, my friends, God does not rule from his potency. It is not what he can do that he does. So sovereignty is not a demonstration of power. Can I take a moment right there? Imagine that you are ruled by a king or a president whose objective is to demonstrate his power. What do you call that government? <laughs> oh, is that my way? A dictator is the person who rules out of power. And dictators force their will upon everybody. God decided right from the beginning, he's not going to create robots. He's going to create free will beings so that they can be in his image. Let us make man in our image and likeness. God has a free will. God makes choices. He can love. And so he could not create us in his will and make us robotic. Now imagine that he makes us free will beings and then he runs the whole world. I call that helicoptering. Have you heard of helicopter parenting? Mm -hmm. Helicopter parenting. You give birth to a child who has a free will. Then you helicopter them. You go around. You choose who their friends are. You say, no, you don't do that. Don't do that. You, you are running after them, stopping everything, making sure they have no consequences at all because you love them so much. And you are powerful. You have enough cash. So when they go and uh, blow their money on something, you give them more money. When they crash their car, you buy them another car so that you can show your potency, your power. Sovereignty, my friend, does not mean that God is in charge, not rather in control. And that's the, the, the question point, point I wanted to make earlier. God is in charge, not in control, strictly, strictly speaking. It's not the right vocabulary. And we say it a lot, God is in control, and it's fine as long as you know what you're saying. He's in control like a, an orchestra director is. An orchestra director is in control. He's doing this. And he's calling in the, the, the um, violins and he's calling in the, 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 the trombone. But the trombone guy can say, no, I'm not going to come. <laughs> I'm not going to come in because I have free will. So the rule of a choir director is a sovereignty. It's very similar to God. Very similar to any country you want to live in. Because however powerful the queen or the king or the president and the forces that exert uh, the rule around him, once people's free will is lost, we are talking about a dictatorship. And God is not a celestial dictator. He's not a celestial bully. Powerful as he is, he will not roughshod man. Now, in work, 
uh, you, you, uh, you understand that uh, there's such a thing as delegation of responsibility. When you delegate well, good leaders, good managers delegate a responsibility and they leave the responsibility with the person they've delegated it to. Of course, you provide training and you provide supervision, but you must walk away from the delegated responsibility. If you give me a task and then helicopter me, micromanage me, you are a control freak. That's what we call them. God is not a control freak. So people say, oh, I lost my wallet. God, God ordained that. He wrote it in the book of life. Oh, in my, my journals. <laughs> we have misunderstood the sense of Scripture when we say that. God does not determine your wallet fail and therefore I had a purpose in its falling and I'll pick it. No, no, no. no. We, we, in saying, there's what we mean when we say God is in control. We are meaning that in the final outworking of all things, God works to bring all things to work out together for good. But it does not mean he micromanages the universe and helicopters everybody about what they are doing. <laughs> Amen? So sovereignty is how God manages his omnipotence in the context of a world that has free will. Let us move forward because I wanted to settle into a story so that I don't bamboozle you too much with too much conceptual stuff and... Uh, confuse you. So I wanted to make a statement. One of the greatest acts of God's sovereignty is that he chose to create. It was an act of sovereignty. I'm going to create. He did not sit a committee. He didn't take a vote. Guys, shall I create? He consulted his own will because there's no one higher than him. And the Bible says that in Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. In him also, listen to this, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. When God wants counseling, he consults himself. He does not need to, to lobby with anybody. He consults himself because he's the sovereign. So he decided I'm going to create and in creating, he created spheres and realms. He created the animal realm. He created the, the let me talk about the just physicality of rocks and soils. And, and then he created trees and then he created other animals. These are all amazing sovereign decisions. And they all work in a certain way. Now, we will go into certain interesting truths. Uh, I'm jumping freely here. Do you remember that Jesus talked about uh, the sparrow? He says, you know, as we sing, your eyes upon the sparrow. And Jesus said, do not worry what you shall eat, what you shall drink. And he said, do not worry. Don't you see the birds? They do not spin. You know, they, they do not cultivate. But he says, none falls to the ground without him, without his permission. You think, that verse does not make sense. No bird falls to the ground without God's permission. That is sovereign language. But what does it mean? Huh? So when a bird is flying and it flies into the engine of an aeroplane, God ordained it because none of them falls to the ground <laughs> without him. What if uh, a, a bird 
Hunter. There are people who just love to kill birds. I don't like people who love to kill the birds just for the sport of it. If I take a gun and I have pellets and I shoot at birds and they fall, God ordained that. Is that what it means? That God actively writes that these birds will die of pellets? Is that what sovereignty means? No, sovereignty language needs interpretation. When God is speaking about how the universe operates, he owns everything because all the laws that sustain and run the universe were spun into existence by him. And he has a capacity to intervene. That's what is making the point of. So when a bird falls, God could have decided birds don't die of pellets. <laughs> he could have decided that at creation. And however many pellets you would have shot at birds, they would never have died. But God ordained the principle that sustains life and takes it. That's why he owns it. And he says, I could have stopped that. So he's talking about a greater order. He's not talking about the management of specific moments. That's how he owns plagues and earthquakes and floods in general. Because they are his rules. He put rules and laws in place. Which now, even in a fallen world... He will not retract. That rain falls by condensation. It is a principle he put in place. And so we'll go into that. Let me not go to that, into that. I wanted us to talk about Pharaoh. Let me behave. 2127. <laughs> I'm sure I will be finished by this. Now, can, can, we, can we talk about the hardening of hearts? Let's talk about the hardening of hearts. Let me specifically zoom in on Pharaoh. Pharaoh of Egypt. Do you remember that Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God? And now we've just read that God hardens whoever he hardens. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute, Lord. I'm praying for my husband to be saved. You are hardening his heart? You are refusing to have mercy on him? No, when God was saying, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, he's not saying it's going to be a lottery. I decided, I chose, and you, you better shut up and suck it up. No, he's saying, I'm going to have mercy on my terms. That's what he's saying. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. You can't monitor it. You can't quantify it. It's not subject to a debate. There are rules and principles I have put in place, and only I am to blame concerning how mercy is administered and how judgments are administered. They come out of me, and they are put in place eternally and are non-negotiable. Mercy and the principle by which it works. Yeah? is put there by God. That's what he's saying. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. You, no one can change that. By the way, I'll tell you one way. That God has mercy. When you repent, he has mercy. He put that in place. You could have decided that there is no point ever at which you get mercy. Who would have challenged him? It would have been his decree because he's the sovereign. But he decided that mercy has functioned. The Bible says God opposes the arrogant and gives grace to the humble. That was ordained by him. So he'll have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And whom shall he have mercy on? On the contrite, on the repentant. Please don't get confused by theological language. Don't settle for easier doctrines which, which just actually create a worship system. There are people 
who when you explain sovereignty like I have, their worship system collapses. They want to worship a God who wipes out a village in a flood because he's sovereign. Just to demonstrate his sovereignty. Anyway, let's go to, 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 to Moses. God give me speed and time. Here we go. Now, let's go to Pharaoh. If God hardens a person's heart so they cannot repent, I'll say this as a statement. He has violated free will. Let's start, let's start by throwing a stinker. If God hardens a person's heart that they cannot repent, merely in that, in that way, he has violated his own prime creational edict that he creates men and women in his image and likeness. And then he turns around and robotizes them to show his sovereignty. It's a violation. Is there a way we can reconcile sovereignty and free will? I'm going to attempt. I want to show you that when God hardens the heart of a person, it is not in violation of their free will. It's not in violation of their free will. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1 to 7, we remember the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 1, verse 7, rather, verse 1 to 7. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of, this, of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, God, you are violating free will here. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you because his heart will be hardened. So that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, of the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Now I want you to come with me as we demystify this. How can God say he's going to harden this guy's heart? Okay, this is the context. Listen to the context. Number one, God has a universe to run. Remember that. There's a universe to run. Number two, he has purposes to accomplish and to bring into, 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 into accomplishment. God has purposes and plans. Yeah? Number three, these are important presuppositions. Number three, I want you to understand. We are, still, we are now dealing with Egypt. We are setting the context for Egypt. I want you to understand that unless God creates a nation called Israel and gives them a covenant and brings Messiah out of them, the whole earth is dead. So at the point of history we are dealing with, we are talking about die or live. We're talking about an important, the most important process ever of extracting a nation out of a nation, bringing them into confrontation with God, establishing a covenant and a people who become a priesthood out of which we can extract a messianic lineage and ultimately get a Messiah who dies and pays for the sins of the world so that there may be life. This is a make or break scenario. Please understand the context that we are dealing with. Ah, let me take a step back. As an agriculture, let me as an agriculturalist, let me tell you. 
When foot and mouth disease is found in your farm of cattle on one on one animal and they say foot and mouth we look we see the symptoms all the cattle must die however large your farm you may have 5000 head of cattle and they found one cattle one of them at the edge of the fence with foot and mouth the veterinary veterinary department will arrive and kill the whole herd the pictures were vivid on our tv entire stacks of animals burning they set them on fire and burnt them if there is a another farm within the vicinity of your farm which by any chance could either share water supply or is within the the, the, the contamination region those animals must also die everything must go the same happens with the um, chicken flu bird flu i think is what it's called not chicken flu bird flu when one hen one chicken one rooster contracts bird flu every one of them is condemned it doesn't matter whether you you hug them some of them have names like sue and John, as people have, sometimes name their animals, it does not matter. They must all die. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The verdict, my friends, on man was all must die. Lincoln must die. Michael must die. Mary must die. Rosemary must die. It is not whether you are nice as a person. A contaminant entered us. And the verdict of Jehovah is death the soul that sins must die that is the context that we are dealing with from genesis to the moment we are even talking about we can talk about abraham and all those those were just seeds coming building up to this moment of a nation called israel okay i hope i've understood i hope i've explained to you the context we are dealing with now i want to make another important statement so as far as we're concerned egypt is dead they actually are dead. They, there is no salvation for Egypt <laughs> at that time. We are just trying to get a nation out. There is, there is no redemption for anybody. These guys are all dead. They are walking dead. So please devalue for a second how traumatic this is. God is fighting to get a nation out. Now let me say, make another point. Before God hardens the heart of a person, he first sends abundant grace. Ah, you're going to say, Pastor Lincoln, you've got to confirm that. I'm about to show you. Before hardening, there is grace. How? How does that work for, for Egypt? The grace of God is revealed to Egypt through a man called Joseph. Joseph is sold by his brothers to, I forget what they are called, those caravan guys. They sell him to an Egyptian. He ends up in Egypt. Egypt has no destiny. It has no Messiah. It has no salvation. It has no promises. They are going nowhere. Whatever, however big their pyramids, however majestic their civilization, they are a condemned people like those herds of foot and mouth disease or uh, bird flu. <laughs> they are dead people. They have no purpose. That's why God says uh, concerning uh, uh, Egypt as we read I have raised you for just this purpose that I may show my glory 
for God to have chosen sovereignly that Israel would be incubated in the nation of Egypt was a great favor that Egypt receives to partake and participate in God's redemptive process of extracting a, a nation out of which Messiah shall come. And I thank God for Pharaoh who had the common sense and the openness of heart when he had a dream from Jehovah. I'm rushing, please understand. I'm sure you know your Bible history. When Joseph is in prison, God sends a dream to Pharaoh. And in this dream, as Joseph interprets it, there will be seven years of plenty and seven years of hunger. This is the word of the Lord. And Joseph interprets the dream of the Pharaoh. And said, this is Pharaoh is, is what about to happen. Pharaoh is impressed. He says, this boy is in charge of the whole program. <laughs> I want to tell you that takes grace. It takes revelation for a king to exalt a fugitive who is in prison and give him the responsibility of running the entire uh, food rescue project for the entire known world. That man had revelation. That man was under the grace of God. Somehow, Pharaoh exalts Joseph. Joseph builds barns. He obeys the words of a, a fugitive, a slave. They gather food for seven years. If this had not happened, Egypt would have been wiped off the face of the earth. I hope you are hearing me, God's people. This is the grace that goes ahead of the hardening. Please understand. Mm. So seven years, they are part of a miracle of gathering food. And after that, I think there was even miracles of multiplication. Because for seven years of hunger and drought in the known world, all the food was coming from Egypt. Mm. Joseph is so powerful in Egypt because of what he has done. He has power no more. Or the only person greater than him was Pharaoh. He is in the journals, he's in the archives, he's in the libraries. He, Joseph has performed a miracle for the entire known world. So when the family arrives from Israel, yeah, when uh, Jacob arrives with his brothers and comes to Goshen, remember? Pharaoh gives them a land called Goshen. He honors them. The Bible says Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh actually put his head down and allowed Jacob to lay hands on him. All these things, please understand, we are talking about journaling communities. These communities journal, they write, they inscribe on stone the things that have happened. Up to today, they find the writings of Joseph on rocks. How Joseph came amongst the Egyptians and the things he did. Now tell me how it comes that the Bible says, they arose a king who does not know Joseph. How? How can a, dynasty, can a king within the same lineage of dynasties arise who does not know Joseph? What kind of knowledge is this? <laughs> this is where you begin to understand the dealings of God in hardening a heart. I want to propose to you, my friends, that this king was not a fear of God. He spat on the legacy of God's mercy and grace of over Egypt. Listen to him. Oh, I wish I could easily find this. Yeah, Exodus 1 verse, ah, did I get the right chapter there? Verse 8. 
can't be one. <laughs> well, listen to this. You find the verses from. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Tell me, what kind of fool does not know Joseph? Even we, uh, we, we come from much more backward uh, civilizations. We know our history. We know Nambi and who we know our tales. We tell our tales of Ugandan history and Chintu and Nambi. You are a pharaoh in Egypt and you don't know Joseph? How? There is a stubbornness and a rebelliousness and a foolishness. This knowledge to me is not he didn't know about him. He had no regard for Joseph. He had no regard for history. And this is where the hardening begins. And he said to his people, now listen to his decree. He doesn't know Joseph. He says, look, this new king, there are other kings who have been there. They've honored Israel. They've remembered what God did for them. He said, look, the people of children of Israel are more than mightier than us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Lest they multiply. And it happened at the event of war that they join our enemies and fight against us and go out of the land. Therefore, let us set taskmasters over, over, task over them, inflict them with their burdens, and they build for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in the dread of the children of Israel. There was a terror in their hearts. They knew God was with the people. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with the rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all the manner of service in the field. And they afflicted them. You understand? That is the, that is the context. That is the context we are dealing with. We're talking about wickedness and the refusal to embrace common sense and common decency. Even then, God does not violate this Pharaoh's will. When we read on, Exodus chapter 5. Hmm? Moses walks into the, the courts of Pharaoh <laughs> hmm? and says these words to him. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go. God did not start by hardening Pharaoh's heart. No. He started by sending an appeal. Let my people go, that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Everybody in that, in that nation in those days knew the, of the Lord. God of Abraham and, and those, the, the stories that were told in those days. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Nor will I let Israel go. Ha! Are you sure, Pharaoh? So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go three days into the journey into the desert to sacrifice. I'm trying to check on my time. Okay. I've taken a bit of time. Then the king of Egypt, Egypt said to them, Moses and Saron, why do you take the people from their work? Go back to your, to your, lab, to, to, to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now. So Pharaoh makes it even harder. When he hears the appeal to let the people of God go, he now takes away the straw from them. He says they're going to make the same number of bricks, but now they're going to get their own straw. 
stubbornness, rebellion, rejection. That was God saying to him, Pharaoh, let my people go. These guys have a calling on them. These guys are your deliverance. These guys are the future of the nations. You've got to let them go. Pharaoh will not have it. Exodus 6 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you see what I will do to Pharaoh. You see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. So we then move to Exodus 7. How many chapters are we on? God is still patient. But he has a universe to run. He has a salvation plan to hatch. He blessed Egypt and incubated them, incubated Israel there. He blessed them with food. And the grace of God was on them. But there's this rebellion which has come. So Exodus chapter 7 verse 8. This is what happens. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. This is verse 8 of chapter 7. When Pharaoh speaks to you, say to him, show, and when he, uh, as Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show a miracle for yourselves. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, that they did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up the rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. <laughs> and he did not heed, as the Lord had said. My goodness. So, the hardening now begins. Now, I want, to, I want to share with you as we begin to navigate out of this because it's going to take a few weeks for us to understand. So, God, remember, rehearses with Moses a miracle in the wilderness, a turning of a, a rod into a snake as the sign that he must perform before Pharaoh. But therein is the catch. I want you to see God has not violated the free will of this man. This man has rebelled. Refused to honor God, he has rejected history, he has rejected heritage, he has rejected wisdom. God sets him up. And I believe this is how God deals with communities, and I'll show you later. Through lying signs and wonders, God empowers demonic forces in rebellious nations to excel. And I'll show you that. It's going to happen in the end times. You clearly recorded in scripture that God is going to release a spirit of deception upon the nations. And lying miracles shall multiply. They will be so powerful, people will be completely led astray. It is coming. The hardening of hearts is coming again. But the hardening of hearts comes when you reject grace. And reject grace. And become stubborn and unteachable. Now God hardens your heart additional to your own hardness. He actually works with your free will because you've exercised it. God never violates free will in hardening of a heart. So when he says I'll harden the heart of whom I'll harden, he's not saying I'm going to rough shoulder and, and overrule and just harden people's hearts. No, he's saying I will work on principle. I will, but you won't understand, but I will harden whose heart I will harden. But it will be because of a process and a principle. 
The process and the principle, my friends. So it goes on. So it actually says Pharaoh's heart grew hard. It grew hard because it was already leaned that way. And now God is saying, okay, if you want to go there, now I'm going to make sure you don't come out. <laughs> because I've got a nation to, to rescue. I've got a campaign to finish. Do you know that even when his heart finally breaks after the 10th miracle, he then mounts chariots and chases after them to destroy them in the, in the water. And he runs into the water when there are walls of water standing up. Pharaoh still commands, go get them. They must all be killed. That is what is called hardness of heart. Hardness of heart begets hardness of heart. And when your heart is hardened, that is free will. Now God comes behind your free will because he has a universe to run. He has a nation to rescue. He has a purpose to perform. So a point comes when God's clock of mercy is done. And that's why the Bible says even now, God is not promptly run trying to finish. He's, he's, he's waiting that many people may be saved. But a point will come when God says, that's it. Shut the door. And the Bible says the Gentiles' door will be shut. A point is coming when Gentiles will not be able to repent because God is going to shut that door. It's the principle of hardness of heart. It never violates free will. God does not simply elect people who are going to go to heaven. That election, I will go into that language and understand the language of election. Because election does not violate free will. The election of God is within the context of free will. And I've shown you here that Pharaoh's heart was not hardened against their free will. It was in line with their free will. God cannot violate the most important aspect of his creational strategy, which was, I want to create worshipping beings, which must have, which, who must have a free will. Because without free will, we can't worship. And then if he now jumps into that and hacks into your free will and hardens your heart against your will, I don't want to worship that God. I'll tell you that. Our God is not that insecure. He's not a maniac. He's not a running maniac. He's not a, a celestial bully. He is not a control freak. He is a God of mercy. So my friends, I hope I have made my point. Um, we're going to pick up from here. I want you to be ready for questions. I'm going to try <laughs> next week to orchestrate this so that we come in on Zoom. So Zoom has the capacity to still do Facebook. If it fails, I'm sorry, but I hope it will work so that we can have a few contributors, a few questions and answers coming in. Uh, you will have the link and uh, let's see how we can go. I may need to teach a little more before opening it up. Let's see how it all goes. Well, friends, God bless you. I hope you learned something there. Even now, if you have a question and want to type it there, please do. But I hope you have learned something there. And um, it just opens up for us the whole thing of, um, of um, understanding free will uh, and, and, and the sovereignty. I wanted to, to, to bring this home. Let me, let me make it very practical. Because somebody says, why is pastor bamboozling our heads? Because, you see, people think... Uh, it's all sovereignty. About the sovereignty of God. Let me tell you what sovereignty of God means. The sovereignty of God established prayer. 
the sovereignty of God established faith. God says, if you pray, you must believe to receive. That is sovereignty. He said, for you to receive answered prayer, you must be fruitful. That is sovereignty. Sovereignty is not, I don't care what you pray, I have decided. It's not just that, my friends. We need to understand, sovereignty established a system of working. It did not shut everything down and say, God has decided, and that's the end of it. But, but it also means that when we fail to believe, or if we can't, we don't pray well enough, or we can't preach well enough, or our worship is miserable, God still works in all and uses it all to still push his purposes. That is sovereignty. Yeah. So I believe God for my friend to be healed. I'm praying for him to be healed. What if he doesn't get healed? I surrender that to the sovereignty of God, who makes all things work out together for good. That's another understanding of sovereignty. It doesn't contradict. It all works together for good. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you are the ruler of the universe and that you are in charge. We ask that you bless us as we grow in understanding who you are and how you work. Bless us today. Bless us this Friday. And bless us even now as we come to give, open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings for your people. And God's people say, Amen.